Matthew 24. And before we begin, I want to ask you, uh, just I'm going to challenge you. Let's put it this way. I'd like to challenge you that we sang songs about the crucifixion, about Calvary, about what Jesus has done. Easter is upon us, is it not? Coming up, April 4th. And by the way, next week we spring forward. So y'all remember that. Move your clocks back. And uh, beginning on the 15th through the 4th. What? Forward? Not spring. Did I say back? I'm sorry. Spring forward. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So therefore, beginning on the 15th through the 4th of April, that's 21 days. Uh, I'd like to challenge you if you would enter into a time of fasting. Now, here's what I mean by that. Don't take that as, you, you want us to fast for 21 days? <laughs> no. What I'd like for you to do at some point during those 21 days, skip a meal or skip three meals during that day. Some day, time during that time period, spend some time in prayer and fasting as a response of love and dedication and a desire to know more of Christ during this time of Easter as we prepare for it so that you can understand more fully asking the Lord to open those eyes of our hearts that we now can be enlightened more and more about what Jesus Christ did for us. Now, we want to start on the 15th because on the 14th we have men's prayer breakfast. <laughs> we wanted to eat. And uh, so, uh, so we'll start on the 15th, which happened to be, you know, uh, 21 days for that. So let me challenge you with that. And uh, I will be sending out to you. Don't be alarmed. I'll be sending out to you via email, via uh, text messages, uh, put it on our website, some little vignettes concerning fasting and truths about fasting and what it means so that you can read those and be prepared and leaving it up to you whenever you want to do that do that Uh, but here's one of the things I'd like for you to do also is that when you after that you fast that you tell me in other words say hey I'd, I'd like to hear the testimony of what the Lord how the Lord you, you saw him anew, and if there was something that was revealed to you in the scriptures that you did not know. It's amazing that when you forsake something for something else, for a higher good, for a higher purpose, how God seems to grab our attention and to speak to us. And so would you do that, please, at that time? Matthew chapter 24. Now, I'm going to take my watch off and hopefully get... You know, get through at a timely fashion, as I told you before. Preacher did this every Sunday, and the little girl said, Why did, you know, what does that mean when the preacher takes his watch off and sets it on the pulpit? And the father said, Absolutely nothing. But I'm going to try to uh, see if we can get this done. Chapter 24, look at verse 15. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. 
Last week we learned about Matthew 24, 14, about preaching to all of the world. And how I believe that uh, I showed to you that this was something that was fulfilled in the first century. Reason being Romans 1.8 when Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith that is proclaimed in the whole world. Then in chapter 10 where he says, your voice has gone out to all the earth and the words to the end of the world. And then in Romans 16 when it says that the prophetic writings in the gospel has been made known to all nations. And so we discussed that about how this was fulfilled at that time. In fact, Acts chapter 2, remember? It says, during the feast they came together and all nations were represented by men. And from there, when they were commanded to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then they went back to their nations and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So... We now come to a point that has some controversy in it concerning what is this abomination of desolation. The futurists believe that this is something that's going to happen totally in the future. Once there is a rebuilt temple, once there has been the rapture of the church, that they are going to have the red heifer that is going to be there within the temple to be able to do the sacrifices, all these kind of things, and then this abomination of desolation is going to occur. I want to try to show you this morning that I believe that it already has occurred, so we're going to look at it from that perspective and let you come to your own conclusions. So when you think of the word abominable, what do you think of? Well, some people think of this, all right? You know, they see this and they go, oh, that's abominable. Or, you know, that's what one daughter said to her dad. Dad, I'd like to introduce you to my boyfriend. And that's what they got. But that is not the definition of abominable. What is the definition of abominable when you think about it? Well, basically, it's a word that means causing moral revulsion or abhorrent disgusting, horrendous, loathsome. And when we get over into verse 21, when we talk about the great tribulation, I'm going to give you some of the facts that occurred that you're going to see as disgusting, as horrendous, as loathsome in this. But we have to ask the question first and foremost, what is, an, what is a biblical abomination? What does it mean? Well, basically, it's relating to the desecrations of worship by false worship or by profanation or profaning of true worship. Now, how do we find this out? How do we know this? Remember, when you're doing Bible study and you're reading your Bible, you always let Scripture interpret Scripture. You find out where these passages may be. So, in Daniel chapter 7, Verse 25, it says, The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is in them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, don't make these carved images as your idols and don't worship them, especially if they are silver or they're gold. You remember in the days of Moses when they had the golden, what, calf was an abomination to the Lord? 
Absolutely, it was. So we also see in, in Deuteronomy 17, uh, Deuteronomy 17, 1, it says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or sheep which is in which is a blemish, any defect whatsoever, for that is an abomination to the Lord. That's why we have to have a sinless Savior, dear folks. That's why, as John says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That person had to be spotless, without blemish, without sin. That's what God required. That's what Jesus provided. Also says in Deuteronomy 27, 15, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and set up in a secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Then we see also in Ezekiel the prophet. It says, Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far away from my sanctuary. But you will still see greater abominations. This is Ezekiel, the prophet. He was called the son of man. And basically he's saying, look, son of man, this is what is happening. Israel is committing great sins. So within this context, what in the world does this mean? It's an act of sacrilege or desecration that will provoke God to leave and leave them desolate. Now, we've covered this before, Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 and 38. Jesus is over Jerusalem. He's lamenting them. He's weeping over this city. And he's saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you what? Desolate. That's exactly what he said in Ezekiel before. You're going to have desolations. He said it in Deuteronomy. You're going to have desolations. You see, this is going to happen when we forsake the way God desires for us to worship. Dear friends, do you think God is concerned about how he's worshiped? You should. It's very, very important concerning the worship of God. First of all, how must it be? It must be in spirit and truth. What did Jesus tell the woman in the world? He said, you've got to worship him in spirit and in truth. It must not have idols within its worship. No pictures or statues that people will bow down before. Now, you're thinking, well, we don't do that, and people don't do that today, do they? Yes, they do. Anytime you erect a picture... I know that people will do this. They erect a, p a picture. They have a picture of what they call Jesus right there in their house. And they've set their prayer thing before him. And they look at an image and they say, praying to them. Or you will see a cross with Jesus on a crucifix. And they have to pray and say their prayers in front of this kind of cross. Folks, that is the setting up of an image. Getting that kind of image into your mind so that you can actually, quote-unquote, worship or pray. Those are the things that God calls an abomination. 
Those things, when we worship God, must be according to his word. Why do we do a confession? It's because in his word, it tells us to confess our sins. Why do we read from the word of God? You go to most churches, do you have them reading the word of God that we do every week as we're going through the book of John? Do you find that the word of God is being read? You don't find it. Who read the word of God when he was in the synagogue? It was Jesus. Jesus came in and opened up the scrolls, the word of God. And therefore, we have that same kind of model where we're to open up the word of God, not just the preaching of the word of God, but the reading of the word of God. Jesus didn't just get up, take the scroll and set it aside and said, you know, that's really kind of boring. Come on, let's boogie, guys. Let's do a little dancing and stuff and let's just get after it a little bit. And I'll just give you a little relevant tidbit about how you're going to live your Christian life. Now, some of you are smiling at my little dancing because you know I can't do it, right? I don't think Jesus could either. Well, maybe he did dance at the wedding. I'm not sure. But think about this, folks, that we're not here to entertain people. We're here to preach and to teach the word of God. The very thing that Jesus did when he entered into a synagogue or Paul entered into a synagogue, they had prayers, they unrolled the scrolls, they read from the scrolls. They read from the word of God. And that is what we are to do. It's not to be entertainment. Folks, I'm trying to tell you that those kind of things are going on nowadays. I just saw a clip the other day where a guy, a preacher, came out and preached his sermon coming out to the tune... It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Won't you be mine? Won't you be mine? And he had the stage all set up with Mr. Rogers, and he came out and did his little sweater, you know, took his shoes off and flopped them up and did whatever, and he did his whole sermon as Mr. Rogers. I have nothing more to say. Okay, so here we have to understand the Word of God Prayers, the confession, these are all things found in the Bible. God is very, very interested in how, in how he's to be worshipped. And anything that profanes that worship basically is an abomination unto the Lord. And this is what we're going to see as we continue in 2415. Now I want you to see this. The conversation switches. Remember, it switches. We have to take into account the time events in this chapter. In the time events in verse 6, it says, You will hear, you will hear wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nation, famines, earthquake, and those kind of things. But now he shifts to this when you see, when you see what? When you see the abomination of desolation. This is something now that is visible. This is something that's absolutely visible. But it's also local because he says, when you see these things, flee in the next verse. So this is something that is visible. So we need to understand that Jesus gives us a clue about this thing that they are going to see. And it's from the book of Daniel. It's found in Daniel 9, 27, 11, 31, and 12, 22. Let's look at those just this morning just real quickly. It says this in 9. It says, after... 
the 50, uh, 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. Now, this is what Jesus said. Your house is going to be left to you desolate. And then he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, and he goes on and says, he shall, make a, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for a half of a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, this is prophetic writing. Daniel is one of the most difficult books to understand. We'll get into the book of Daniel later and look at some of the prophecies that it talks about. But for this morning, we look at where Daniel, Jesus gives us an opportunity to look at Daniel to figure out what this is. So in Daniel eleven thirty one, he says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. This is talking about the person that's coming into Jerusalem. And shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So what we're looking at is this, chapter 9. When it talks about the anointed one, that's talking about the Messiah. The people of the prince is Rome. The people of the prince, it says, is Rome. That's going to come, and it's going to wipe out Jerusalem. And what does it say they do? They destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Daniel was prophesying of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 168 B.C. under Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes is a name that Antiochus gave himself that says God has appeared because he wanted to be worshipped. So when we look at this and we understand that the book of Daniel is prophesying about something that happened in 168. But Jesus says it wasn't totally done then because it's going to happen again at this time at A.D. 70. So when we go to chapter 11, we understand that the pollution of the sanctuary is basically Gentiles came into the sanctuary where they were not supposed to be. That was a sacrilege. They did away with the daily sacrifice. They turned the priest room. This is why it was such an abomination. According to that time when Antiochus Epiphanes came in with the Romans, came in, he turned the priest room and the temple chambers into public brothels. That's what he did. Then, over the altar, he placed a statue of Zeus. That was an abomination. What was even a greater abomination... He sacrificed a pig on the altar. Sacrificed a pig on the altar. This man hated the Jews. What was the most unclean thing to a Jew? It was a pig. It was a pig. You remember the parable of the son, right? The prodigal son? Jesus emphasizes this. This guy went away and did what? He was eating the corn husk of the... Pigs. In other words, he was totally unclean. This is something that Jews understood. And even in the, uh, this reading and understanding that when Jesus is telling these things, abominations of desolation, you can imagine the mind goes back to Daniel and they knew that this kind of thing happened. But not only did he sacrifice a pig, he appointed a high priest that was not of the family of priests. Is that a big deal? Yes, it was because they had to be of a holy line. 
They had to be of a certain way or they could not serve as a function of the priest. This Antiochus said, nope, I'm just going to put somebody in there that's really going to give you problems. And what they did is that they prohibited the observance of the Sabbath, the holidays of the Jews, and circumcision. The biggest thing I want you to understand just from this, folks, is this this man had a holy hatred of the Jews. And basically today... You know, hatred knows no bounds, right? You know that. We need to understand this, folks, too. Are you really surprised that people are trying to call anything that is righteous hateful? If you notice that? Anything that's talked about from the Word of God that we might say is a sin is now considered what? Hate speech, <laughs> Why are we surprised? What did Jesus say? The world will do what? Hate you. Will absolutely hate you. So we need to understand it's going to hate us. How are we going to respond? More hate? Or the way Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. So we need to be careful there. But hate knows no bounds. As it was in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, so it is in our day today. Now when we get to, to Daniel chapter 12, he describes a three and a half year period when there would be no sacrifices. If you read that verse in 12, uh, 31, you'll see it and you'll understand it. That he talks about a time period that equals three and a half years. Now, if you're a futurist, the Bible, uh, they, uh, the futurists said that the Bible verses in chapter 12 don't apply anywhere except into the future whenever there's going to be the beast, as far as we concern, a future beast and the Antichrist and the temple set up and whatever. However, historian Josephus absolutely disagrees with that because he says, he, Antiochus Epiphanes, spoiled the temple. He put a stop to the constant practice of offering a daily sacrifice of expiation for three years and six months. It's exactly what Daniel prophesied. Daniel prophesied that this thing's going for three years and six months. These things are going to happen, and this is exactly what happened. He says he compelled the Jews to dissolve the laws of the country, to keep infants uncircumcised, and to offer swine's flesh upon the altar. So when we begin to look at it from that perspective, we see that Jesus is putting something together, something that was occurred in 168 B.C., as Daniel prophesied, but now Jesus is saying this is going to be totally complete now in the present as I am speaking to you, it is going to come the final fulfillment of the book of Daniel. That's basically what he says. And we need to understand then what would the disciples see? What would they see? Well, we have an understanding in Luke 21. When we compare both of those discourses that are given in Mark, that are given in Matthew, that are given in Luke, you will see in Luke 21 it says this. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Who is going to see the armies? 
the people that were in Jerusalem. When? 2,000 years from that time or then? It was then. It was the armies that were coming to take siege of Jerusalem. And so the abomination of desolation, when we look at it, begins when the Roman army started surrounding Jerusalem. Now, there have been four possible events that could be called abominations. And let me give you to this. Please don't check out yet. Don't get bored with this because you, you need to know this. But first of all, there was the zealot uprising. The zealots were the guys who hated Rome, who were the ninja assassins of the day. They literally would carry daggers underneath their cloaks. They were, would come around maybe a Roman soldier or a Roman person that was there in a high official, and they would stab them, you know, let them fall and take off running. They were those kind of guys. They were always trying to find ways to overthrow the government of Rome. So at the outbreak of the, of the war, when we look at the desolation that is happening to Jerusalem, at the outbreak of that, the zealots stormed the temple area. And they made the holy place a garrison and a stronghold. Abomination. In other words, they came into the holy place and they desecrated where they went is where they were told they weren't supposed to go. They also allowed the people who committed crimes into the Holy of Holies. These guys were murderers. These guys were putting people to death at random. If they disagreed with the war against Rome, if they just wanted peace, they would commit murder. And they would do it anywhere, including the Holy of Holies. They committed murder within the temple itself. Now, get this. They appointed a man named Fanny. Have y'all ever known that? I can, who was not qualified to be the high priest because they believed, they did all these things, and they, they built a fortress within to keep themselves in, keep the Romans out, because they believed that God would intervene directly to vindicate their cause. Dear folks, eschatology matters. They believed the Old Testament prophets that God was going to come to set up his political kingdom based upon the prophetic writings and that they were going to be supernaturally delivered from all this tribulation when the Messiah came. Eschatology matters, dear friends. Eschatology is what caused different cults that we have today of the early leaders of those cults to announce the coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of this thing, the setting up of kingdoms based on faulty information. Eschatology does matter. And in the same way, during this time, the zealots were saying, God is coming. Don't you worry. You're going to see these Roman armies. You're going to see everybody falling around you. But don't worry. God is going to intervene. And it didn't happen at all. So we have the zealots. We also have the Edomians. Who in the world is the Edomians? Edomians were the country south of them. The zealots, when they knew that the Roman army were coming in mass numbers, reached out to the Edomians, and they came to help with the war. In fact, they gathered 20,000 men who marched to Jerusalem. However... Ananus, the high priest and other Jews who didn't agree with the zealots said, we got to keep these guys out. So they barred the gates and would not let them in. So the zealots 
in the dead of night, saw through the bars of the gates and let them in. And what did they do? They were ticked off, talked the zealots into going and slaying 8,500 Jewish people in the outer courts of the temple because they didn't go with them on their side. They didn't agree with what they were doing. They would not cave in. And what did they do? They took Ananus and they murdered him along with several other priests. So we have the zealots, the Edomians, we have the Romans. Were they the problem with this abomination of desolation? Were they all, this was this uh, the abomination? Well, what did the Romans do? During the siege of AD 70, they killed over one million Jews. They burned the sanctuary. They set up Roman standards in sacred areas and offered sacrifices to them, and they plundered the city with no mercy. Folks, if you ever get the opportunity to read the wars or antiquities by Josephus, you will find some of the most graphic descriptions of what these armies did to men, women, and children. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. I'll be sharing a few of those with you when we talk about the Great Tribulation next week. But what if it was the Jews that were part of this? Now, I want you to think about this quickly. Only a religious representative of God could defile the temple. Only a religious representative of God could actually defile the temple. And earlier in God's history, God accused the religious leaders of defiling the temple. Listen to what Ezekiel 5.11 says. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw, my eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. What did these Jews do during the time of Jesus? John chapter 2. And he says, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Matthew 21, 13. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What were they doing? For those of you who do not know, basically, as people came into the temple, they had to bring the doves, they had to bring the lambs, they had to bring the sacrifices. They set up money changers because as they brought them from whatever country they came to, the priests and the scribes and those who were in the temple area would look at that and they would determine then, oh, this has a blemish here. This has a blemish here. You cannot use this, but over here in my cage, I've got some that are not blemished. You can buy these for a certain amount of money. Do you see what they were doing? In other words, they were saying, we don't care what you brought, you got to use ours, and you have to pay for them. This is extortion. This is what was happening within this time. And Jesus says, look, you're defiling the temple. You've made my father's house a house of trade and a den of robbers. But what did they really do? What's the biggest thing? The priests, the scribes, the elders, and the Pharisees rejected Jesus as the Messiah, as stated in Matthew 26. Listen, let me read it to you. It says, the high priest stood up. This is the time when Jesus is before him and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? 
Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and says, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Dear friends, since the Lamb of God was slain, there was no need for a continued sacrifice. However, the high priest continued to offer sacrifices they rejected the atoning work of Jesus Christ. What was the abomination of desolation? The abomination of desolation was this defilement of the temple and the armies that God used from Rome as his hand of judgment. As his hand of judgment. God, dear friends, take this away. God can use sinful people to accomplish his righteous purposes understand that when you're going through your life and you're having circumstances and people that come into your life and you think why in the world are they like the way they are what in the world is going on it might be that God is teaching you or preparing you for something by the people God has brought into your life at this moment. He's allowed you to experience what you've experienced so that you can understand him more fully and you can know what he, he is doing. So how can you know if something is being used by God or somebody's been used by God or your circumstances are being used by God to teach you something or to move you towards your purpose? How in the world do you know? Psalm 23 teaches us this lesson, and this is it. David said at the end of his life when he wrote the Psalm 23, he said, Surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. How did he know that? When anybody's following you, what do you got to do? You got to turn around and look, right? Who's back there? What's going on? Oftentimes, in the middle of a circumstance, or the middle of a conflict with people or whatever you may have going on in your life, you may not see the providence of God at that specific time until you turn around and you begin to weigh the circumstances. You begin to look at what has happened. You begin to look at the people that God has brought into your life. It's then when you can see how he is working. Sometimes it's not only till then. The Jews, the zealots, these people, what were they saying? God is going to come and he's going to intervene, but he did not. And yet they then were destroyed because of their abominations. They were destroyed by those kind of things. They didn't take the time to look and think, what has God been doing this whole time? He's been calling them to repentance. He's been calling to them to say, you have defiled my temple. You need to repent and if you repent, I will relent and I will save you. 
But they didn't turn around and they didn't look. They didn't see these kind of circumstances. You have the opportunity to turn around and look and see what's following you. You have the opportunity to ask the question, why did God put this person in my life at this time? Was it discipline for sin? And folks, most of us don't think that at all. We blame the other person. If they're in our lives and they're causing us grief and they're causing us problems, we always complain and gripe and mumble and say, that's going to be good on the tape, okay, whenever we play that. Almost sounded like Joe Biden. Oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'm slip of the tongue. Anyway, but we complain and we, we, we do those kind of things not thinking that God may have put them there for a, real, a purpose. And that purpose may be for you to look and to see, is this an act of discipline by God? To get me to move off of where I am onto what his plan and purpose is for my life? Or perhaps the circumstances in your life that are coming through and some things are happened are you looking at it to say, is this because of it? Or is it an opportunity for me to endure through this trial so that my faith will grow? That I will grow in brotherly love. I will grow in patience. I will grow in self-control. What is it? You have to turn and look and understand these kind of things to see what God is doing. Last thing is this. We can learn just from this kind of thing how this applies to us is this. The rejection of Jesus Christ has severe consequences. Absolute severe consequences. What happened? Jesus had been telling them. He asked them to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And they rejected Jesus 40 years later the whole Jewish system wiped out. Sacrifices, temple, everything to the ground. Not one stone laid on another. Millions of people slaughtered or taken into captivity. What's the consequence of rejecting Jesus here in this day? You know it. Eternal consequences. Separated from God forever in eternal hell if you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, dear friends. That's the severe consequence. But the good news that if you trust Christ as your Savior, that he died for you and your sins, that you see in and of yourself that there's no way that you can save yourself and that you have sinned against a holy God, that sin already has separated you from him. And yet you recognize that and you come in repentance and say, Lord, there is no way, there is no way that I can save myself. My sins have separated me from you. But Lord, I need you to forgive me my sins. When you take that and you trust and you call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says you pass from death, pass from judgment into life. There are severe consequences if you do not receive Jesus as your Savior. One thing that we understand from this verse, from this verse, we understand it. They did not accept the work of Jesus Christ. So God sent the Romans to take care of it 
as judgment. Dear friends, take hold of Christ. Run to Christ. If you are here without a Savior, trust Christ. He's the only one that can save you. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Son so that we may receive eternal life in heaven and a life that is abundant here. So, Father, I pray there if there's one that has rejected you as the Savior of the world, Lord, I pray that you would open their heart to believe, that they would see their sin, that they would see that they have sinned against you, a holy God, and that a good God, as you are, must punish sin. Lord, help them to cry out in their repentance and say that they need you. And Lord, I pray that they would call upon your name, trust in what you did on the cross for them. And Father, that they would receive new life and enter into the kingdom of life from the kingdom of death. Help them, O Lord, in this hour, in this time. I pray it in Jesus' name.